Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDV 860 AM 97.5 HD2, part of the Meadsley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. You know what I just realized, Jeff? It's Friday. No, I went away again and didn't bring you something back. And I literally just realized that as we started talking that once again i was a terrible co-host and did not bring you congrats congratulations because like (laughs) you forgot about that and i don't know that would it would never cross my mind i i but but you've shown the the guilt that you must have grown up with that (laughs) that the second that you saw my face you thought oh i forgot to bring him like there's no gift i Unless you're going to bring me back like a bottle from Margaritaville, <laughs> there's nothing that I need from Key West. I just need you to get, if you want to give us tickets for a trip to Key West when you get back, uh, I will gladly tape that. But I don't need tchotchkes. Yeah, that, I, I, I'm perfectly fine. I got everything. Thank you very much. I got lots of mugs from Key West. I got all that stuff. And no place to put it except in the storage facility. So I have some like internal guilt or something going on that I like, I, I don't know. I didn't even. You're just realizing this? I, yeah, yeah. Like well, this, no. cro- this just crossed your mind. No, I mean, I've realized it for four, four years okay. now. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, it was. It's, it's, I'm so glad that I've become like your personal on air therapist. Like, well, well, I don't understand why we're doing a sports talk show. We, we should just change it. You can send me a bill later uh, for, for the time. Well, you know who, ne- you know who does need a bill? Brandon Staley. <laughs> How did you know? How did you know? <laughs> because we've been doing this show so long together. I, I mean, considering we've it. been doing this for like six or seven years and every single uh, Friday that w- there is a football game, I make a point of saying that I didn't watch it. I will gladly tell you I did not watch it, but I do want to talk about Your it. reaction there when I knew exactly what you were going to say was <laughs> almost as good as my guilt realizing that I didn't get you a gift there. You were like, how did you know? No, look, I thought the Chargers were going to leave Brandon Staley in Vegas. Okay, the over under was 36 and a half. The Raiders reached that by halftime. It was but you're but you're but you're burying the lead. The lead was last week. The Raiders score was three to nothing. Yes. And they lost. Okay, they lost. They just so we're clear. They (laughs) They lost nothing. Yes. And 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 Brandon Staley. I I know we're not San Diego sports talk, but I'm doing this out of empathy. Like. (laughs) I don't understand how he keeps getting the job the next week, let alone the next year. Richard Sherman the, the, at halftime called for him to be fired at halftime on air. He, Amazon. he should be. By, by the way, his specialty is defense. Didn't go well. Uh, he, 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 he gave up 63 points to a team that scored zero the week before. And who did they play the week before? Khalil Mack had six sacks against Aiden O'Connell and the Raiders himself the last time they played. Like, that's the turnaround that occurred in that game last night. And, look, I, I give him credit. Staley did the halftime interview with Amazon going to the locker room, and I really thought that was going to be his exit interview for the team. I just thought that would be totally done. You, you know, know what it was? It was an interview for a, for a, an on-air job once he gets fired. That's what it was. He's going to need something. There, I mean, think about it. This is where, look, not all of Philadelphia owners or New York owners are great, but we should all be appreciative of the owners that we do have, except for Dolan. Uh, actually, but, we are a little lucky here in Philly. Um, Brandon Staley turned down flying to Philadelphia to interview with the Eagles. So it just kind of worked out. But if we remember back, he chose the Chargers. Cool, your problem. They lost 63-21 last night. We will see whether 
he survives yeah, but the Sp- it. But the Spanos family is historically stupid. Yeah. I mean, the, they have squandered talent after talent. They had one of the greatest running backs in history in Ladanian Tomlinson. They had the Fouts and, and that whole group that didn't win. You had the group that had Philip Rivers and you had Drew Brees. You had, I mean, you can go, and now you have Justin Herbert and they just keep squandering it with crappy coaches. Well, I they, mean, really bad coaches. They've wasted that rookie deal with Herbert. And now they have to right. deal with the fact that they have a huge deal for him and can't put the talent around him. They have the talent around him. That's the thing. <laughs> There is a ton of talent on that team. So you they think that's Austin all... Eckler, they have Keenan Allen. You you can go through the list. There is plenty of talent there. There is nobody to coach them. So you nobody. think that's all on coaching there? Yeah, I believe it's all on coaching. Well, I think he'll be I, 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 I can't, you can't be this, but okay, I'll prove to you it's all on coaching. What happened two years ago when the Chargers, all they had to do was tie to yeah. make the playoffs. They do you remember that? They couldn't do that. They could do it. He chose not to, remember? Oh, God. Yeah. All he had to do how did was he survive that? Tie. How did he, how, because the Spanos family had a contract with him and they don't want to waste any money. Well, they're wasting a ton of money you know, for on everything else because they're being so cheap with their coaches. For somebody who doesn't want And then Thursday last night. year, there was no way you should bring him back and they did it again. And now they're sitting there looking at the bottom of that division going, now what do we do? By the way, you had a chance to have another coach in that division. Yeah. The Broncos head coach, Peyton, was rumored to want that job if it became available. Well, we'll see what they end up doing this offseason. I cannot imagine they bring him back. I mean, that. They've done, they've done dumber. People things, have been but, saying that for years. Yeah, I, I, I get it. <laughs> I just, I don't know. So anyway, while I was in Key West, you know, I didn't have a good feeling about the Eagles Dallas game. I told you that before I yeah. left. So mm-hmm. we didn't stay at the the bar to watch the game, but we watched some football there. We saw a ton of Eagles fans walking around Key West. Sarah kept saying, like, I don't understand where are the other team's fans. Like, there were a lot of fans walking around. They didn't have as much to say on Monday before they did. Where are the other team's fans? What, Cowboys fans? Anything. Any other fans. There was, like, no other fans wearing. She was surprised. She didn't understand why. I was like, well, because Eagles fans only go away on vacation when the Eagles are away. Is, is that how it works? I think that's it. Yeah. You, you think that's what it is? I mean, I didn't I think, say... It's I the- think that's... I, for, it's an odd thing because when I was in Key West a long, long time ago, it was when the Flyers were on break. Okay. For for a week. It was actually the All-Star game and, and I ended up hanging out with Sean Podine. So oh, <laughs> even the players go away. You, you were <laughs> but, you were ready to talk sports long before you were talking sports. <laughs> All right. So we, we will get to the the Flyers because they're fun to watch again. We will we will get to them at some point in this show. But Tied the, for second place in the division. The Eagles lost as to, we speak to Dallas to fall to ten and three. Uh going into the season, you wouldn't let me talk about this stretch of games and they opened up you know it's funny i don't remember that but but i totally believe that i said you were you're discussing the schedule yes you did not want me and i and at the start of it they they started off three and oh and you would have thought okay they're great now the sky's falling because of the way they've lost the last two games Mm -hmm. so as an outside observer of the eagles where are you right now on this team as tommy cutlets screws up your draft picks up north 
Oh, oh, do we get a chance to talk about who the NFC and AFC players of the week were? Oh, we'll get there. Okay. Um, I agree with you now. The sky's falling. Uh, The the back end of this defense is a mess, and I'm not sure it's because of the talent or if it's because of the coaching, but there is a real problem on the back end of the defense. The defensive line is not a problem, but but the linebackers and the defensive backs are, are just not holding up. And it's becoming a real problem against better teams. Now, you now now that you've gotten through this gauntlet, who's the remaining games that the Eagles have? They have one of the easiest schedules right. remaining. So, so, so it it may appear to look like it's corrected itself because now you're going to play lower competition. But the fact is, the teams that you needed to worry about going into the playoffs, the teams that you're going to have to face going into the playoffs, the 49ers and the Cowboys, looked exponentially better than the Eagles did. Even the Eagles, the offense did not look great. No, they they exposed some of the things that you've told me I'm not allowed to complain about because of the team's now you can complain about record. It. Like the the fact that this team doesn't invest in linebackers and then you see backs out of the backfield and tight ends just destroying them across the middle. You, I think it's more on coaching than it is on the players, by the way. Uh, I, and specifically on third down and fourth down, they have the worst third down defense in the NFL. They give up one out of every two third down snaps they have. They've given up 61.2% of their third down snaps over the last three games alone. When you say given up, mean given up to getting, allowing a first a- down? Allowing a first down. Okay. They've also been awful in the red zone. They're the third worst red zone defense in the last three weeks in those gauntlet games. They won the Buffalo game, but the other two, they, they've given up 11 of 12 trips into the red zone. At the same time, they're not getting turnovers. They're 21st in the NFL in takeaways, 29th in interceptions. They've got just six on the season. So it's a complete problem. They're also not getting pressure. So when you're not getting pressure, what I don't understand when I say it, it's coaching, I keep, I'm not the guy that played. So I look for other people breaking it down in the analysis. And what I keep coming back to is the breakdown where on third down, they rush five, mm-hmm. but they don't get pressure on five. So they have one less man in coverage and they're not getting pressure with five. So either they're, it's kind of being half pregnant. Either you blitz and put pressure or you have a standard defense and play coverage and they're not doing either. So they're holding on first and second, but on third and fourth, they're giving up everything. What's I, the reason that they're rushing five though? I don't, I don't, is, honestly don't is know. Is Jordan Davis the problem? I mean, who's, who's the problem there that, I mean, some teams rush three. Rushing I, four is, is standard. Rushing five, unless you're in a blitz, doesn't make any sense i have going back to jonathan gannon when i can play it's this style of defense it's the vic fangio style of defense that unless he's ben, running uh, it, the, the ben don't break defense yes that's well, what it's, they, it's breaking and it dry it dry how long have i yelled on this radio mm-hmm. show about it and you and other guests like you you say oh the, the record is you can't complain about that look at the giants record or this right mm-hmm. these are the same problems that they've had they put a lot of talent around those problems but you go to the offensive side of the ball they threw to three players last week that's it on the whole offense well is that coaching or is that hurts i i think uh, has hurts taken a step back both 
I, I'm I'm not going to absolve Jalen Hurts. He's the guy. I mean, how how can you, how can you only throw throw to three guys? You have two great receivers. I you, think you have you have. I mean, look, you don't have Goddard for the moment. Well, they had him back. Have, that was the thing. They had him back. Those right? were the three receivers. Well, I'm saying you didn't have him. Okay, so you had him this week, and and then you do have receivers who can catch out of the backfield. So. Now, so why you, is it that he only threw to three targets? You've had some drops and some fumbles where, like, those first two drives against Dallas, they were driving. They were moving down the field. Mm-hmm. They fumbled the ball and lost momentum. So it's not like they weren't making plays, but they, they're not rushing the ball, like, at all. I happen, if you watch... You can see Jalen Hurts tapping on his helmet, like get the play calling. I don't know whether it's coming in slower this year than it did last year or what it is. He's not having time to read the defense, but you can see there's a difference. And there's also a difference between earlier in the season before his knee injury and now too. So I don't know what's contributing to it. I, I I have had questions about the coaches all season. I thought Brian Johnson would be more of a natural fit because he's been with Jalen Hurts forever. But he's never been the lead play caller at a level like this under pressure. So he's learning under fire. Sean so Desai. You want, you want Frank Reich back for the last few games of the season? Look, I never think it's bad to have more voices in the room. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how egos take that in the building, but I'm a mm-hmm. person, I'm a consensus person who likes good ideas. I don't care if it's my idea. Apparently Alabama doesn't care. No, they're bringing in Michigan guys. Oh, I'm going to get to that too. Don't worry. We're going to get there. All right. So the Eagles will play on Just Monday. let me stew in the meantime. I will. Yeah. I will. So the Eagles I will. I can sit here quietly aggravated. The Eagles will play <laughs> on Monday night and I'll have to wait all weekend to see it. And it is a full weekend of football because we start Saturday games. So will you sit around for Saturday, Sunday, Monday, watch all the games? No. Did you Especially see? I mean, how many of them are good games? You can go through that list. It's there's there's not many good competitive NFL games. No. As no. evidenced by another Thursday night. No, there weren't. Did you see, by the way, that um, there could be an expanded NFL window now? What do you mean? They want I know to, that they're another, considering another international game, but which would basically mean if they had an internet so. What they want eventually is that each team will play eight home games, eight road games, and one international game in the 17-game schedule. So that would basically lead to an international window of a 9.30 start, a 1 o'clock kickoff, a 4.25. Oh, but you're not. The way you you said it, I thought you were saying that somehow they're going to expand it so that there's another week. No, no. It's 14 hours of football on Sunday for people to see. I actually like, look, I like the uh, the European games. I love the 9.30 starts. I, I like being able to get up and instead of watching talking heads all morning i can just sit there and 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 watch a football game yeah I even if I, i'd rather watch a crappy football game on a sunday morning than on a thursday night okay i'm, I'm for that so I, if, I, if i watch a crappy game anytime i was the person that was still watching when it was 62 to 20 i know but, but if, Am, if amazon's listening hey go for the crappy sunday games in the morning and and get rid of thursday night i'm good with it so uh, we've officially reached peak parity. Uh, there are 30 NFL teams still officially active and in playoff contention entering this week. Who's out? Panthers? Uh, yeah, the Panthers are out. I think the I think the Bears are out too. Uh, eight underdogs won in week 14. That was the most in any NFL week this season. Uh, I do want to talk about your Giants for a second. Is what's going on good there? No, I, I just I just want to officially announce that hell has frozen over. The, the NFC player of the week was Tommy DeVito, Tommy Cutlets. 
and the AFC player of the week was Zach Wilson. Okay. <laughs> if I would have told that, you that before you, the season, need, yeah. If I would have told you that before the season, would you have thought that I like got into a bad batch of something? Uh, I I would I would have gone to the station and said that uh, Jason can no longer talk about sports. <laughs> is what I, I would have done. He's lost his I mean, ability to talk sports on the radio. And, and the amazing thing is, uh, Tommy Cutlets didn't even throw for close to two hundred yards. So why is it that we have gotten to a point now that because his passer rating is good? that we're even discussing this. You know there's going to be a movie like, about him, right? And who's the best oh, character, him, his dad, or his agent? And, and the agent's just <laughs> annoying. The, 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 the agent, agent is getting inducted into, like, the Italian-American Hall of Fame today uh, or something like that. I, I know. It, it's it. Look, this is a circus, but it's not... Like, if there's one person who actually likes the Giants, who thinks that Tommy DeVito is an answer beyond this caricature of a bad season, they're nuts. Like... I get it if Philadelphia fans want Tommy DeVito. Loving to every second. Super. I'll t- I'll even take Daniel Jones back. Let's not forget he's injured, but he's still on the team. There is no way that Tommy, Tommy DeVito, what he has done, congratulations to him, is he has bought himself, you know, a three to five year window of being a backup quarterback somewhere. Okay. He, he is not Brock Purdy. Uh, you know, and, at some point, people just have to take a deep breath and go, he's playing with this reckless, uh, I got nothing to lose attitude. It, he's if, screwing up your draft pick, Jeff. It, the, yes, he is. <laughs> You're going so to continue to not have any offensive yeah, linemen to protect your the, quarterback. The, the, the only people this is good for are t-shirt salesmen. And, and Eagles and fans. Yeah, <laughs> it, this is not good. And then, and then you go across, across the field or across the locker room to the Jets. And Zach Wilson, who was rumored the week before to say, mm, I'm good. I don't want to go in and play. All of a sudden comes in a game in, in the rain, pouring rain and cold and plays by far his best game as an NFL player. He looked play. good in that game. Yeah. And now they'll play a beat-up Miami team this weekend who's got a ton of injuries. So see how that shakes itself out. Anything else you want to talk about? In the pro football, or should I? In like, the world of the NFL, no, yeah. I think I think we've exhausted everything that we could possibly talk about. Should I let you keep stewing over your college talk and talk hockey, or which? No, let's think? let's get that college talk out of the way. All right, so it's quiet so, time. The Bulls actually start tomorrow. Uh, I know that you're going to be sitting around. When waiting. is the Pop Tarts Bowl? When, when do we get to see people eat the mascot? <laughs> Love you. you know that's the deal like the, I, the mascot's edible what do you think dave raymond has to say about that i don't i don't know but I, i'm just telling you that's as somebody who's not a big fan of germs that, that <laughs> <laughs> the pop tarts bowl is thursday december 28th at 5 45 so set your calendar jeff put a reminder in Actually, I want you to break it down on that Friday show on the 29th, okay? Because next week we're going to do some Festivus, most likely. Mm. Uh, and then the week after that, we're definitely going to have to break down how the eating of the mascot went at the Pop-Tarts Bowl. Uh, what really has you uh, unhappy, I'm sure, is that Alabama is expanding their, their coaching staff. <laughs> Tell me about yeah, it. <laughs> I, I, I really don't understand how a team is allowed to hire a coach that was coaching another team says the guy who's for the, been under for investigation 
all season for sign stealing. I just have to point that out for our non-Michigan fans. But go ahead, tell me, tell me. Say that again. Says the guy whose team has been under investigation. Yeah, potential well, sign stealing all season. Everybody wants to bitch and moan about that. No, I was good bitching and moaning about it. I'm, I'm, I'm on the bandwagon there. So I is get this it. legal? It, was, it wasn't appropriate to do, but, but, but Alabama, Nick Saban. You know, everybody wants to talk about Nick Saban and you know how he's he's so cool and he does everything right. I, I guess this is okay. I but, I don't. I but, don't. But I don't. It, but but it, no. I mean, I, there's no rule against it. But the fact that you there is not a rule against it is again an example of the NCAA having no clue. Like it, this had to have happened before. I just didn't know about it. And, <laughs> it just didn't impact and, Michigan. <laughs> yeah, it didn't impact it, so I didn't really care. I guess. <laughs> you are I the admit definition. How I you am are the definition argument, right? of a of a NIMBY fan. Like yeah. you care directly about the impact. But, but how how is this permissible that you can hire away somebody who is on the staff? Like, well, he's not on the staff now, though, right? He was he wasn't on the staff this year. He's not working right. anywhere. I don't believe. So it's but, not like but they if, hired if he coach. right. If if he if he was somebody that you hired at the beginning of the year, it would be one thing. Hiring them strictly before a national championship semifinal has stink written all over it. Okay. So <laughs> Alabama fans go do your thing, but just realize you're as dirty as everybody else. Are you uh, ready for the Myrtle beach bowl tomorrow? Kicks everything off. No. When is the Bahamas bowl that takes place in, in Carolina? <laughs> I'll look that up. Why that's my, that's these, my favorite. Why do you ask me these things like on the radio? When I'm not prepared, I don't actually need an answer. Nobody, there's nobody here. The, who Bahamas, cares when the Bowl Bahamas Bowl is Monday, December 18th. You have time to travel to North Carolina and, to and, go. To and the where game. is it? In North Carolina, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's uh -huh. not in the Bahamas this year. They're like construction. <laughs> can you, can, at the can you imagine, like, you know, there there are lots of college student and alumni who will still go to like any bowl game, and, and you sit there and you go, "Boy, if we make the Bahamas Bowl, we can we can make a trip out of it. We can make a you know four or five day <laughs> vacation, go to the Bahamas, see our team." And all of a sudden, you make the Bahamas Bowl, and you realize, crap, it's it's in North Carolina. Well, Rutgers going to the Pinstripe Bowl again. I mean, I went to Yankee Stadium years ago when they played there. Same thing again. The worst place to see a baseball game. I have no idea if it's also the worst place to see a football. Oh, game. it sucks to see a football game and a soccer game there. It just sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it, it's so sad because for those of us that have spent time in the old Yankee Stadium, they they replicated, but somehow destroyed it. <laughs> A uh, couple minutes before we hit the break, and when we come back, we'll we'll do basketball talk. We'll we'll talk uh, the book Boston Ball, and get into some college basketball and the rise of it. Uh, I want to say, oh wait, wait, wait. Then let's talk. Let's talk a little college basketball. Okay. Um, peripherally, yeah. Because because you know you know that I was aggravated this week. Uh, yeah, so I, here, yeah. Here's I, my therapy. I session. never know. I never know when I'm going to send Jeff a text message. We've talked about this on the show. Jeff ignores mm -hmm. about nine out of every 10 of the messages that I sent him. One out of every 10 he responds to. 50% of the time that he responds to that one out of every 10, he's cranky about it. This week we had that. Tell us why. This week it was don't ever send me that again. Yes. From which, not, which, not the story. The well, that's source. It. Yes. So, so I've told you in the past, I'm done with Twitter and I'm not calling it by the, its current name because I think it's stupid. I, but I, I mean, I, I believe Take your is, stand. Is, yes. But well, no, I, I believe and I'm everybody's entitled to their own opinion that that Twitter has been um, lax in not protecting 
us against hate speech and for pedal allowing peddling conspiracies, which is evidenced by the fact that people like Alex Jones are now on there again. So I don't want anything from that. But here's the bigger problem is we we know we talk to lots of really good reporters who spend a lot of time sourcing stories, making sure they get it right. We talk to them all the time. And what Twitter has done, even with the good reporters, is it is forcing people to spit out stuff before we actually know all the facts. And so I just think, especially with what we do on the show, is we want to make sure that we get it right as much as humanly possible. And when I see things, and, and this week's example was a Michigan example, which was Jawan Howard. The first stories were is that he was going to be immediately terminated or or quit when nobody knew because of an assault on another coach and then that the tweet you sent me was actually deleted uh, and that was by a to, to your credit came from a source which was uh, the the tweet was from somebody who actually is a good reporter yes. but what it what came out of it is everybody jumped the gun too soon there is something that happened with Jawan Howard he did get into an altercation, but it appears with an assistant coach, a strength and conditioning person who's very beloved at Michigan. Um, but it appears it was a verbal altercation. The investigation is still ongoing, but the initial reports were of physical confrontation. Would you and have so would you have had that, a different reaction if I sent you the Detroit Free Press story mm-mm. that was out there? Uh, yeah, yes, I would have. Because I, I, after your reaction, I went to the mm-hmm. Google and I typed in Juwan Howard. And, and there were there were all these stories there from legitimate news sources with the same speculation. So I couldn't tell whether it was this. I, I learned that it was the source that bothered you, not as much as the story. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't the source because the reporter who did it is a good reporter. It was, it was where it was that it came from a social media uh, machine that is leading reporters to jump the gun because they need to be first, because we are such a society now that craves immediate news instead of good sourced news. I do think that, that it's a bigger change. problem. It's it wasn't an aggregate aggravation with you. It's it was an aggravation with with that particular outlet, which is I have told you in the past. I'm done with. Like I, I don't have an account with them anymore. I understand. And look, you you know me. I mean, I'm I'm somebody who's made a living out of digital media, with, right. with yeah. clients. So like I always joked, I knew I was going to have a career in this once I saw a hashtag on a TV ad, you know, 15 years ago, but. I don't think that if Twitter goes away, that process changes. I, I agree with you. And but so, it, but but as, but as an idealist, I hope it. I will always hope it does go away because I'll give you another example. We we have a lot again, as, as I've said, lots of reporters who come on the show. Some that we consider friends who I know for a fact will come out with a story that they spend a, a whole day on talking to everybody under the sun, getting all of their facts right going through the process, having it peer reviewed and then getting the story out. And then all of a sudden you can go on Facebook or you can go on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And there'll be a story that's very similar to it. That is just somebody has just ripped it well, off. I think there's a difference. A couple I think there's a difference between aggregation, which is just taking somebody's stuff and putting it out as your own or putting it out 
an amplification where you have these well-sourced reporters that are using the platforms at their fingertips to try and put it out there. Now, I get you don't like that particular platform, but I just Mm -hmm. think there's a difference. I, I think that these legitimate news sources that are trying to amplify their coverage because people may not be coming to the homepage of their website without being on a social platform isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think the ripping off. No, of but that, you're missing my point. My, my point is not just that they're ripping it off. It's that, it's that, that there is this craven need that we have now of getting as much stuff out as we can. And so they'll, they, they either stoop to jumping too soon or grabbing somebody else's and, and reworking it as their own. It, it, reporters are a dying breed because we all can't just read a story. We can't pick up a newspaper or even want, read the newspaper online. We need to get something in 160 characters or less. And because we do that, we don't get it right. Yeah, that's my fault. I don't have the attention span to read those long form stories. I mean, I try, yeah. I want to. I do better now that we have a sports radio show, but I'm the I'm the person that that thrives in that medium of brevity. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm the one who wants to read the whole story. When you send me a story, I read it all the way through. When friends send me stories, I read it all the way through. And, and the thing is, I I will even notice in myself that if you send it to me, the headline could aggravate me. The first three lines could aggravate me. If I stop there. I would have misinformation. And and because I read the whole story, I think I'm saner. Let's, I didn't say sane, just saner. Let's go to break. We'll pick it up on the other side. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Let's talk some basketball. Uh, Historian, professor, author, Clayton Truder joins the show today. Uh, Clayton got a new book, Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. Jeff, thanks for having me. Collect- so I, I got a question. Why do you call it the forgotten cradle? Because I, surprisingly, few people know that, that so many great coaches came out of Boston during this time period. I'm a college basketball fan lifelong, and I had no idea until I lived in Boston for a while. I, I went to graduate school at BC, and I'm a basketball junkie and would go to college games whenever I could. It didn't matter who it was. I'd you know go over to Harvard or Northeastern or BU or BC. And when I was doing that, it occurred to me that you had Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, all coaching there roughly the same time. They all end up in the Hall of Fame. And it it just struck me as something that hadn't been covered very much. I went out and I bought the autobiographies that all three guys had written, like after they won a championship, which is kind of a standard thing to do. Patino spent four pages on his five years at Boston University. Gary Williams spent five pages on his four years at BC. And Calhoun was particularly verbose, spending a chapter and a chapter and a half, roughly, on his 14 seasons at Northeastern. So it struck me as something that uh, that merited a little more scrutiny. Collectively, they've won more than 2,300 games and six national championships, reaching 13 Final Fours. You wrote this book at the height of the pandemic. How different was researching and writing this book 
you did like a hundred interviews during the pandemic than when you wrote your other book, Loserville. Well, there were, there were very different enterprises. I'm, I'm by training an academic historian. My first book was a product of my dissertation. It took me 10 years to do that. A lot of archival research in different cities, looking at public records. My first book is about Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports. So a lot of it's like the politics of building stadiums. So I spent a lot of time going through records for that kind of stuff, simply to research the book. I spent months and months in Atlanta just getting that all together. This was a very different enterprise. It's it's exclusively a sports thing. I found what footage from the time period I could. I looked at the Globe. I looked at the Herald. I looked at the student newspapers from the three schools. And then I went and found people. I mean, I'm doing this in yeah 2020 and 2021. For my sake, it worked out nicely because everybody was at home. And I conducted these interviews all virtually in a three-month period. A lot of the people, I just like found them on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever and said, hey, do you want to talk? And the people who wanted to talk ended up being a part of the book. So in some ways, it was a very easy way to book to write as a result of the pandemic. But I think it's also part of the nature of the topic. It's not something where I was going and looking at public records or something like my first book. So because it was based on game accounts, on personal recollections, it ended up being a much easier thing to 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 research, to organize and to, and to actually write. You know, one of the problems with college coaches, and especially in the Boston area, is they're eclipsed by the Boston Celtics. How important is basketball to Boston and how hard is it for a college coach to maintain a successful program in the shadow of such a legendary and successful pro team? I think in some ways it's strikingly unimportant. I mean, even the Celtics historically drew more poorly than the Bruins did. When the Bruins went through this big gap of without winning, they still drew great crowds to the Garden historically. The Celtics won championships and had several thousand empty seats throughout the regular season. They had playoff games with plenty of empty seats in the 60s. So so in terms of, as a, as a as a basketball town, as a pro town, it's strangely lacking historically in some respects. There's a great deal of enthusiasm for high school basketball there as there is a lot of places College basketball has had a tough time drawing beyond the particular alumni bases of the schools. Uh, BC drew pretty well in the early 80s. They were in the Big East. They were a good team, a competitive team. But their appeal was almost exclusively alumni and students themselves. They didn't draw a larger Boston public. I mean, people often said to me, Boston is a pro sports town, which which is certainly true. And it's also an interesting thing because people talk about it as being America's college town. But it's a very unconventional college town compared to, say, Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Madison, Wisconsin, or New Brunswick, New Jersey, where there is one college that is the focus of everything in that particular community, as opposed to Boston, where the pro sports teams dominates, dominate, and you have all the colleges are their little particular niches. So you talk to us about the basketball landscape at the time, which serves as the backdrop for this story. College basketball is basically in a transition period. You're going from a 25 team tournament in the mid 70s to the 64 teams in 85 the brand of basketball that these teams played because of the types of recruits talk about the way they changed the game i think the chaos we've seen in recent years was also happening in this time period in a different way the formation of what people i think think of as the traditional conference structure in college basketball is to a great extent happening in the very late 70s and very early 80s and it, it all starts really with the formation of the big east in 1979 adding adding villanova and st john's and syracuse and bc being the team from boston not because bc had a particularly strong heritage but because they had access to the garden dave gavitt getting all these different teams together into this this basketball mega conference 
forced everybody else who played college basketball, all the little state schools and little Catholic colleges in the Northeast to scramble to find conferences. So you have Northeastern and BU who figure prominently in this book as the places where Calhoun and Patino are coaching. They end up in this weird marriage of convenience known as the ECAC North, where you have a couple of schools in Buffalo with Canisius and Niagara in the same league with the Northern New England State Colleges, Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire. You have BU and Northeastern at the other end. You randomly have Colgate for a while. There's no particular geographic or historical reason for all those schools to be together. So it ended up being quite a mishmash for all these places. Closer closer to you guys, Villanova, certainly. They start out in the Eastern Eight, then end up in the Big East eventually. So it's just a mad scramble going on in college basketball in terms of that. Stylistically, there's also a, a shift, I would say, towards more small ball during the early 1980s, early to mid-80s. And BC, BU, and Northeastern were all really at the forefront of that. Um, college basketball in the 60s and 70s had increasingly been dominated by big men. People were looking to recruit the likes of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Bill Walton or Bob Lanier or Artis Gilmore. Well, BC wasn't capable of recruiting those guys on a regular basis. So the guys they found were often guys who were a little overlooked, small, quick, athletic players who played well into the fast-breaking, trapping, and pressing style that a guy like Gary Williams brought in. Similar things were true at, Northe- at Northeastern and BU. They had to find... Uh, diamonds in the rough, I would say, recruits recruit-wise, and then it ended up playing this faster tempo of ball that a lot of teams in the 80s, 90s, and the early 21st century adopted as a response to a very big man-dominated game in an earlier generation. You know, each of these these coaches has their own circuitous path to, to success. These aren't straight lines. These people don't have meteoric rises. They have to get where they're going, which is, you know, that's life. And and for Patino, you you write about the fact that that his path uh, was was partly influenced by Jim Beheim. Can you tell us a little bit about how how two coaches who ended up being rivals uh, were so linked together early on? Well, I think in part that comes out of the whole five star family, the whole Harvard Garfinkel's basketball camp. There are a lot of these coaches who end up part of this network in the Northeast. All have connections to that. Certainly, both Beheim and Patino are early. Um, uh, early exponents of that basketball philosophy and products of that camp. Um, Patino becomes a uh, an assistant of Bayheim's in 1976. Patino, right out of college, he went to the University of Massachusetts, which was a power in the old Yankee Conference, playing alongside the likes of Al Skinner and, and in his freshman year, Dr. J. Patino immediately gets an assistant's job at Hawaii. He's there for a couple of years. There's some, there's some shenanigans going on in the program which he may or may not have been involved in, depending depending who you ask. And he ends up <laughs> in need of a new job when he's 25 years old. He's He gets married in New York City in the summer of 1976. And on that day, Jim Beheim shows up at his wedding and says, I have a job for you. So Patino interrupts his wedding to go and hang out with Beheim for a couple hours and talk about um, potentially getting a new job as head basketball, co- as, as an assistant coach for him. And he ends up delaying his honeymoon to go re- recruit uh Lewis Orr and Roosevelt Bowie, who both end up being NBA players. So so Patino spends two years working with Bayheim and Bernie Fine and Brendan Malone, these guys who go on to be great coaches, both at Syracuse and other locations. And he really has his, um, uh, I guess he's, he's he has his uh, education in some ways as a coach at Syracuse, and he brings that approach with him to Boston University when he gets a job still in his mid-20s. But Bayheim didn't want him to take the BU job, right? Yeah, he said it was the worst job in the East. They were playing a Division One schedule and had six scholarships. 
they had like a $12,000 recruiting budget when other schools had forty dollars and $50,000 budgets. He said, there's no way you can win there. Patino goes in. He's as great a salesman as he is a basketball coach. He convinces them to double the number of scholarships to 12, increase his recruiting budget to $25,000. And as, as anytime you hear Patino give a talk in front of like a corporate audience, he'll make the joke, they gave me a car, a Renault look car, which is like the cheapest car available in the late 70s. And he's six feet tall, recruiting guys who are even taller than him, trying to get them to fit into the subcompact car. Must have been must have been pretty comical, you know, driving like the really tall guy in The Simpsons who had like his knees up on a, you know, up to the, you know, like the the roof of the car kind of thing. But by comparison, the previous coach had much less to work with. Patino goes in there and is able to to get a lot of these guys who had have connections to five star basketball camp and very quickly built a successful program at at BU, having a nineteen and seven season his first year, and they hadn't won more than like. 13 games since the early 70s he's the he's, prior co- the, the prior coach have a pinto or a pacer <laughs> he, he had a bus pass i think <laughs> hey, he's and patino's not the only one with a crazy story i mean calhoun basically got the job because he met a prominent alum and gary williams coached college soccer before he was able to be a head coach talk to us about their journeys yeah i mean J- jim calhoun gets is the third coach at northeastern in 1972 their first coach, a guy named Dick Dukeshire, who'd been a fantastic Division II coach there. Northeastern was one of the best Division II programs of the 1960s. They were in the tur- 60s. They were in the tournament almost every year. Dukeshire took the job as the Greek national coach in the 1972 Olympics. He befriended the athletic director at Brandeis, who had some connection with Greek Olympic athletics, and said, ah, I know a basketball coach. So this D2 American coach shows up and becomes the coach in the Olympics for Greece. Um, He gets sick when he's over there in in Munich at the Olympics and can't come back that fall to coach. His interim is is, is, uh, a guy named Jim Bowman, who did a pretty good job in his one year at Northeastern in 71-72. He's 29 years old at the time. He gets a letter from the FBI Academy. He'd been applying for it since he graduated from college seven years earlier, saying, uh, we're offering you a position in the Academy to eventually become an agent, but you have to accept it by your 30th birthday, which is in two weeks. That was the cutoff at the time to join the FBI. And he ended up thinking the FBI was a much more stable career than coaching a Northeastern team that was just in the process of transitioning to Division One, um, playing a Division One schedule with a Division Two roster, basically. He said, fine, I'm joining the FBI. So Calhoun gets in touch with this prominent alumni, ends up getting the job, takes a pay cut. He had a union job, you know, coaching, uh, teaching high school, good benefits and everything. Left that, uh, had a young family to go coach basketball at Northeastern. And slowly but surely, he transformed them into a very good Division One program. And by the early 80s, they're, they're one of the first true mid-major programs. I mean, the conference there in the ECAC North with BU and Northeastern, Canisius, Niagara, often had three or four teams that made the NCAA and NIT. It was a strong, not one of the majors, but a strong conference. And three consecutive years, Northeastern scored upsets in the NCAA tournament with Calhoun. So they were like, sort of like Gonzaga in the late 90s, I would say, is what Northeastern was like in the early to mid-80s. And it all started because a guy decided he wanted to be in the FBI. That's amazing. Oh, and in terms of Gary Williams, I didn't answer that part of the question. He was a high school teacher, and he's from Camden County originally. He was a high school teacher in Camden at Woodrow Wilson High School, wins the New Jersey State title in 1969. Um, he His his friend Tom Davis, who had been his mentor at the University of Maryland, uh, Davis was a graduate student, graduate assistant at the time when Gary Williams was a player there. Um, Davis got the job at Lafayette and gave Gary a call and said, you want to become my assistant coach? And he thought about it and he said, sure. And when he got there, he said, oh, I forgot to mention, 
Uh, it's a halftime position. The other halftime job you have is coaching the soccer team. Gary Williams had never kicked a soccer ball in his life. All of a sudden is coaching a division one program. He basically just leveled with his players and said, look, guys, I don't know anything about soccer. I know about getting guys in condition. I can help you with that. But you you do the soccer part. And he ended up being basically a 500 college soccer coach for six years, knowing virtually nothing about the game while being an assistant for uh, for Tom Davis at uh, Lafayette and getting them to the NIT on a couple of occasions. So basically he was the original Ted Lasso. He's totally he's Ted Lasso completely. <laughs> yes. So, so one of one of the things that we we like to talk about or notice that when it comes to especially with college coaches is how important the players, the student athletes are to them. In researching the book and talking to the student athletes who played for these three coaches, did you notice anything about that? Is there anything that that weaves these coaches together in the way that they achieve their success and the way that they treat their student athletes? The strong degree of personal loyalty that persists to this day between player and coach in all three instances is striking. I mean, people talk about how corporate college sports have become in all kinds of ways, and I think that's almost certainly true. The relationship these guys had with these players in Boston in the early 1980s was a very different thing. Talk, I didn't I didn't talk to Rick Pitino. He didn't I didn't agree to an interview for the for the story. I spoke with many of his players who spoke incredibly highly of him and were ready to run through a brick wall for him in 2021, you know, 40 years later. But both Calhoun and Williams, they remembered what these guys majored in. They're like, oh, yeah, he was a communications major. This guy was a sociology major. They knew what had happened in their lives after that. They still were in contact with many of these players. The, the tight bonds that these guys built over time is, is quite remarkable. And I think in this very in this kind of one-and-done NIL transfer portal era, it's much tougher to do that. But these guys went through thick and thin together over several years, and I think you can certainly see that with the uh, the intense relationships they have to this day. I mean, another thing that made researching this book so easy was that these guys are all still in touch with each other. I remember I talked to one guy at uh, BU, Jay Twyman, whose father, Jack Twyman, is an NBA Hall of Famer. And once I was in touch with him, like he just put me on a, a text chain with like six other guys he played with. I mean, they're just they're friends to this day and they still have such such strong relationships. They had such intense experience to, this is together as young men and, and they and they still share in their lives together to this moment. So in many ways, I think it's a book about relationships as it is as uh, much as it is about basketball. You know, you mentioned relationships. What was the relationship like between the coaches when they were playing against each other and then after they had moved on as they got older? Um, there's kind of there's there's kind of a separation in that that Gary Williams at BC was kind of in a little bit different world being in the Big East than the other two coaches. I think there was a a, a bit of a distant respect between Calhoun and Williams and also between Patino and Williams, and I think that continued on throughout their career. In terms of the the Patino and um, Calhoun relationship, it was it was it was a, a a very difficult one during that time period. I mean, there's stories about the two of them. You know, they're both they both go jogging along the Charles River. They wouldn't even look at each other. I mean, there were all kinds of flare ups in their games and fights between their teams. There's no sense that there was any love lost between them. Uh, talking to Calhoun now, he has great respect for Patino, and I, and I think uh, distance and a sense of a shared history together has given him a more of a sense of just a, a an admiration of a of a worthy adversary as much as anything. But at the time, it was a very fiery relationship. Uh, once once Patino leaves BU in 1983 and BU falls back a little bit, you get the sense that Calhoun misses him just from the way he talked to the press at the time. Like he's like, I miss the fiery competitive games we had with Boston University. The the rivalry has lost some of its juice. So I think he kind of in a way wanted 
Patino to still be there, that it would have given their biggest rivalry a, a lot more uh, a lot more fire to it. There was one other Philadelphia tie that I wanted to ask about. Uh, Patino had a point guard at Boston University, uh, Brett Brown. Oh, uh, absolutely, Brett Brown, a kid from South Portland, Maine. Um, his father became was, an assistant. I mean, his, yeah, his Brett's be, yeah. son now plays ball here for the UPenn coach who we interviewed a couple weeks ago. I mean, it's amazing, this basketball family. Well, well, that that BU team is amazing, like the connections it has to the basketball universe. Certainly, there's the issue of Brett Brown and Bob Brown, both both coming down from South Portland and being part of that program. One of the other guys who's at BU in this time period is uh, Kyrie Irving's father, was for a time the leading scorer at Bo- in Boston University history. Um, and, and there's there's some other ones that that aren't coming to mind right now, but that BU team has like five different guys. That, that, who have some connection to being a major figure in the in the history of basketball. I mean, Jay Twyman, his dad's you know in the Hall of Fame as well. These guys are all playing together uh, at the same time. Frederick Irving and Jay Twyman and um, and and Brett Brown certainly. Brett Brown was a fantastic college point guard. He was a captain as a junior. Um, he was I mean both his junior and senior years, and one of the fastest players anybody had ever seen. Um, he's one of several guys in that BU team that got a triumph with the New England Patriots during the early 1980s. Like the Patriots, this is, I mean, this is before Robert Kraft owns them. This is a much different rinky-dink organization playing in a rector set stadium. I mean, the Patriots have an owner at this time who ends up losing his fortune because of Michael Jackson, basically, because he invested in the, this, the Jackson victory tour. And Michael Jackson didn't end up being on it, so he had to sell his team. I mean, the Patriots were like a triple-A baseball team, basically, version of the NFL. So they called up BU and had like three or four different guys, like just try out to be a kick returner receiver any kind of speed player because they just they needed some some athletes because they were so uh deficient in that respect in the early 80s it seems like when ron Myers turns, it, patriots and it turns out it's all come full circle now the patriots <laughs> think again maybe maybe bu and a bunch of these college basketball programs can provide some football players <laughs> I, I think they certainly need that right now certainly if they don't even could throw a football that'd be very helpful too it does seem like this book sort of chronicles some of the leading edge of, of the changes that were going on in basketball at the time the book again is boston ball rick patino jim calhoun gary williams and the forgotten cradle of basketball coaches clayton tuner we loved getting a few minutes with you to talk about it all and wish you the best of luck oh thank you this was a pleasure what a fun interview we will catch up with you soon thanks man all right thank you What a fun conversation about the rise of basketball coming out of Boston and those coaches. I know you're not a fan of some of them, but you had to enjoy this conversation. No, the history of sports always interests me. The 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 characters of sports sometimes don't. So (laughs) (laughs) I can separate the two. Let's let's move on. We've only got about seven minutes left in the show. Uh, Baseball or hockey? Yeah, let's no, let's talk about the characters of baseball because because here's another chance for me. I know this isn't festive this week, but it, it, I am particularly aggravated. I was going to say you're airing all your grievances the week no, before no, our show. <laughs> Don't worry. And, and by the way, for those that are curb fans, boy, we got one more season, so <laughs> that's something to be happy about. But what the Dodgers are doing is, I am not exaggerating, destroying baseball. They just signed Otani to a $700 million deal, of which during the actual contract, I believe they're paying him $20 million. Is that right? $2 million a year during the length of the contract, and then they pay him afterwards, right? Yes. Okay. And and so they get arguably the, the, the best player in the sport in our lifetimes, if he's able to pitch again. If he's not, you have a glorified designated hitter who will win the MVP, you know, every other year 
for Intel Heat. Who brings you who brings you that market anyway to market your baseball team now too? Yes. And and what did they do immediately? They traded for one of the best pitchers when he's healthy in the game and Tyler Glass now on top of it and got a, a, a pretty good outfielder thrown in, which I don't really understand. And now they're going to also be able to market to other players that they have all of this extra money in order to get people because the guy who's their best player is making virtually nothing. Like, literally uh, his $2 million dollars nothing salary, in the world of baseball. His $2 million salary will make him the 17th highest player on the Dodgers. He'll earn less than retired players Chris Davis, Ken Griffey Jr., and Manny Ramirez. Uh, <laughs> and I, look, and I, by the I, way, I appreciate... it's also gonna, but it's also going to make them marketable to, to a host of young Japanese players. It's that are, if, if Yamamoto signs there, the, you might as is if they stay healthy, like the odds on the Dodgers winning the World Series will be through the roof. I appreciate the peaceful transition of deferred compensation from Bobby Bonilla in 2034 to Shohei, mm-hmm. Shohei Otani in 2035. <laughs> that will I will still have something to look out for. I think you're going to see more like this. I think they found a loophole in the CBA. There's you no can't, limit. But no, you can't. First of all, you're going to have to find players that will want to do that and agents that will allow their, he's their making, clients to do it. He's making $50 million in endorsements. He well, doesn't, yes, but that's it. You're, you don't, and first, by the way, it's he, not going to happen. He won't all. have to pay the California tax is that he will when he's not living in California when he gets paid. I understand. <laughs> I, I, I understand. All of these things are not possible. First of all, there aren't a lot of teams that can afford to do this because at the end of this, you're going to bankrupt your franchise unless you're the Dodgers or the Yankees. Second of all, you're not going to find many players that are going to be willing to do what they did because not everybody gets the endorsements that Shohei Otani gets around the world. And look, it's not like our team isn't spending here in Philly. So like, I don't want to be that guy but what you're concerned about <coughs> excuse me as i caught this arms race going on you're gonna make it to the end of the show i don't know uh, it's tough <laughs> this is hard 57 minutes i don't know if i can do it uh what's that your con- tri- trip really <laughs> did you win what's your no concern more level you? <laughs> about this arms race going on between the dodgers and the braves mm-hmm. while all the phillies have done this offseason is re-sign aaron nola and let craig kimbrell go that's that's but that's a positive i know you, you I, improved I, your I, team by getting rid of Kemble. I listed those two um, as positives. I'm for that. I, but what's your concern level right now? About that they're not going to be able to keep up with it? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm concerned. Although, you, if you, the one thing, if you look at the Dodgers lineup, it's not great. They don't have a great hitting lineup. You know, they have Mookie Betts. They have two of the best players in Mookie Betts and, and Shohei Otani. But the, but the entire lineup is not scary. The pitching staff may be scary. But it won't be this year because, I mean, Otani won't be able to pitch this year. But now you have Glass now. You have Walker, Bueller, and then who else? Clayton Kershaw is not signed. Yeah, and I don't know if they what do they're going to do for pitching there. I mean, we'll we'll see what they do. We got two minutes If Yamamoto left. signs with the Dodgers. It's a problem. Then I'll be, The Phillies supposedly met with Yamamoto the other day, hosted him in a meeting. So yes. fingers crossed that they're, a, they're, they're in this. I'll believe that when I see it. Two, yeah. Less than two minutes left. Flyers may be in a rebuild, but they've got some fun things going on. They beat the Capitals last night. 
They're 16, 10, and 3. They've picked up points in eight of their last nine games. Six of their last nine have gone past regulation. Last season, they didn't get their 16th win until January 9th. They were 16, 18, and 7 at that point. They're perfect in shootouts. And more people, I told you before the season, all I want is relevancy for the hockey mm-hmm. team. That was my goal. More people are going to the games. It I know, was- but here's the fear. And I know we don't have much time to discuss this. Here's the fear. The Flyers have a plan. Are they going to stick to the long-term plan? Or this puts you in a weird situation. You ne- you have a lot of talented players. You have a lot of talented players that are abroad that are going to be here in the next year or two. Um, you have a bunch of veterans that are apparently helping. Those veterans are going to be very valuable at the trade deadline. What do you do? I think you stick to your plan. I really do. Uh, I, do I, you I, think that the, the average fan, not the diehard, that the average fan is going to understand this? No, I don't. I think the people who have suffered with the team for the last couple of years as they've gone mm-hmm. into irrelevance will understand it. Yes, they want to see good players out there, but they understand what's coming. I think it's that kind of next layer of fan that you're trying to attract. I had somebody text me last night. The Flyers are the best team in the city right now. Ooh. We're going to have to follow up with that during our grievances next week. It's mm-hmm. going to be the last thought of the week. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.